Hey guys, welcome back. Now, what was it that we were talking about again? Oh, that's right, that's right, the rather pedestrian topic of love, marriage, sex, and lies. Now, where did we leave off? Where did we leave off? Does anybody remember? Well, you should because it was a place few other church sermons ever wrap up. If you remember, we were listening to a song and it was being sung by a, a, a woman. A woman smoldering with an as yet unquenched desire to be loved by the man that she loves. She sings to us about how she loves the way he smells and how she longs for a kiss from his lips. And, and yet what drove her and all the other women in town nuts was not his pecs, but it was his person. She sings that his name, which in the Bible often is used to connote one's character or, or reputation, she says that his name is... Well, it's like perfume poured out. His character overwhelms the room with its fragrance, and as a result, she longs for nothing more than to be brought into his bedroom. Now, if you're here for the first time or you're visiting us with this morning, you might be thinking, well, this is my kind of church. Let me bring some context to what we're talking about here. In order to combat some of the cultural untruths that have seeped into our way of thinking, we've been looking at God's truth in regards to, well, to love, sex, and marriage. Week one. If you were here, in week one, we looked at what I would call the foundational lie regarding sex in our culture today. And that lie is that, well, it's just sex. It's just physical. It's a need and a desire, just like any other bodily need or desire that we human beings have. And so as long as we meet it in a way that doesn't hurt anybody, as, as long as sex is between consenting adults, well, then it's just sex, it's just physical. Don't make more of it than it is. In fact, the culture actually tells us that we should be careful not to repress any of our sexual desires because to do that, well, that would actually be dangerous. What I've been trying to share with you over the last couple of weeks is the counterbalancing truth to that lie. And, and that's this, that, that this is really about that. Sex is not just sex. Sex is something more. It, it has, and hopefully you've been hearing this, a deeper meaning, a greater significance, and a more transcendent purpose in our lives. In the city of Corinth, the people lived in a hyper-sexualized culture, not all that different than the one we live in. And that same lie that sex is just sex, it's just physical, it was often repeated on their streets, and it was beginning to get believed in the church. So the Apostle Paul, the guy who wrote most of your New Testament, and, and guys, remember, when he wrote it, he didn't, he didn't know he was writing the New Testament. He didn't know he was writing the Bible. There was no such thing as the Bible in Paul's day. What we've compiled and bound between two leatherette covers in regards to Paul are, are letters that he wrote predominantly to churches he planted that were struggling with spiritual and social issues. In Corinth, what they were struggling with was this lie about sex. And Paul was addressing it. He told them in regards to sexual immorality, which he would define as sex outside the bounds of a marital covenant. Paul tells them, don't believe the lie. Sex is different. In fact, he would say that sex is not just different, it's dangerous. And here's why. He wrote them, all other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. He would go on, he would tell them that that sex is more than just physical, that, that it has power, really unlike anything else, in that it impacts us 
on the inside, at our, our deepest level, at the core of our souls. And, and, and he said that was for two reasons. The first was that because sex was not merely reserved for procreation, nor simply for pleasure, but that sex had power to unite, bind, and join people in unfathomable intimacy and knownness. That was its power, and that was its purpose. The second reason is that that kind of intimacy, that kind of union and knownness and oneness, that is the kind of relationship that God longs to have with his people, with, with you and with me. And when we use it for these purposes, sex becomes the very clearest and closest example of God's desire and passion and love to be one with his people. You see, this was about well, it was about that. What we've discovered is that there's actually an entire book in the Bible that is, well, both about this and that. It's about, on one hand, desire, sex, intimacy, love, marriage, and then, well, how all of those things are analogous to God's love for his people. That book, The Song of Songs, its very title meaning that it's the greatest song ever sung, it's a short eight-chapter collection of Hebrew love songs, and it starts with the description of that desirous woman I spoke of earlier. Now, if you were here last week, you know that what almost ruined the love story before it even got started was the woman's doubts about herself and, and fears she had over rejection from her love because of her perceived body image. She was afraid that the way she looked wasn't going to be up to par with the cultural beauty standards of her day, and that as a result, her affections might be rebuffed. In chapter 1, if you were here with us, you could almost feel her as she longs to meet her man, not at night by cover of darkness, but as she said, at midday. She asks him, why should I be like a veiled woman? You see, for this woman, the, the only thing greater than her desire to be with him physically was to be known by him intimately, without cover, face to face, like the way God created her to be with both her husband and ultimately her God, naked, unashamed. Well, he, and he is this unnamed suitor referred to in the song, he does anything but reject the woman. Instead, he rejects the cultural standards of the day. We talked about that last week. And he sings to her. Well, he sings to her about her radiant beauty. And this relationship, it is off to a hot start. Let's pick it up right here. Because the man goes on. He, he sings to her, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. And she responds in kind. She, she comes back and says the same thing. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved truly delightful. Everything seems to be going well, right? And then, then suddenly she sings to him out of nowhere, our couch is green, the beams of our house are cedar, our rafters are pine. What? I mean, talk about killing the mood, right? And guys, isn't just the, the way it always goes, right? You're talking to this woman, you're maybe texting, you seem to like each other. Clearly there's some attraction. But before you even finish the first date, she's already talking about what your house is going to look like. And what a house. A green couch, paneling. It's, it's like she's channeling the Brady Bunch, the, the living room of the 70s. But that's not actually what's happening here. 
The actual story is this. The female protagonist is not merely propagating a gender stereotype about women in relationships. Because remember this, well, it's about that. What she, this hopeful bride-to-be, is doing, she is, she's expressing to the one she loves her longing for a home. Now remember, in this story, in this song, right, this is always about that. It's a story about a woman and a man, but it's also an, a story of allegorical love story about, about God and his people. And so here the woman, who in the song plays the role of us, the church, in her earliest encounters with her future husband, whose analogous role is that of Jesus, she dreams of her future home with him. Which, if you're with me, would make perfect sense, right? Uh, who amongst us, when coming into a relationship with God, hasn't done so with the reward of heaven first and foremost in our mind? It is not the eternal question of man, where do I go when I die? Think it through, right? The parallels are unbelievable, really. Jesus, in his, in his earthly ministry, he'd been trying to prepare the disciples for his coming crucifixion and resurrection, but as you can imagine, they're having a hard time grasping that concept. And so in order to try to get them to understand what was about to happen, Jesus said something absolutely remarkable. In their culture, in first century Judaism, when a young man asked a young woman to marry him, upon her acceptance of that proposal, he would tell her that in order to begin their future together, he was going to go home to the house of his father, and he would add on to it. He would make for her and their coming family a home. And, and that when he was done, when, when his work there was done, when the job was complete, when his father said, this is good, son, he would come back to her, and he would bring her to that place. Knowing that they knew that, Jesus looked at his confused disciples, and he says to them, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and I prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Do you see this, guys? Do you, do you see how this song of desire, love, intimacy, and marriage, do you see how this really is about well, it's about that. It's about God's desire for love and intimacy to be with you eternally at home. Let's jump back into the song. She goes on. She says, I am a rose of Sharon, a, a lily of the valley, which sounds pretty confident, right? Perhaps she's begun to overcome all of those body image issues she was struggling with earlier. I am a rose, a lily of the valleys. But here's the deal. A rose of Sharon or a lily of the valleys? Really, it was just a common desert wildflower. It'd be akin to someone today saying something like, me? Mm, I'm really nothing more than a dandelion on a soccer field. See, it's like she's beginning to see a future with this guy. She, she, she kind of can, can see something ahead, but she's not totally sure how into her he really is. Maybe she's a little hesitant to let her heart go to get her hopes up. But this romantic dance continues as he, he begins to sing back to her. He says, as a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. Gentlemen, we should all take a note. This guy has got serious game. He starts where she is. You call yourself a mere wildflower, he says. Okay, I can go along with that. But compared to everybody else, 
you're like a rare wildflower surrounded by common weeds. Who knew it was this guy that came up with the concept of a rose stuck between two thorns? And that's it. Well, she's in now. If she was fired up before, now she is all in. So she sings back to him, sustain me with raisins. Refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. He said, listen, listen. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I mean, can we not see where this is going, right? The progression has been obvious. The Song of Songs starts with a woman who wanted to be kissed right on the lips. And apparently, this was before she'd even spent much time with the man she loved. But soon, they started talking to each other, and and one thing leads to another. They're gazing in each other's eyes. They're embracing each other. And then, well, it actually turns out not what you think. Certainly not what would happen today in our culture. In fact, what happens next in this romance is a warning so serious that this woman actually swears a solemn oath over it. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem. She's addressing the single ladies in town who've been listening and partaking in the song, actually. She says to them, ladies, I'm putting you on oath. Even now, after all this, she goes on, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Wait. What? I swear by the gazelles or the does of the field, huh? I mean, where did that come from? Weren't they just about to, well, you know? What is she talking about? And since, I mean, honestly, since it seems kind of like a cryptic line, you might even be tempted to move right past it to get to the passion. But you can't. You know why? Because she says it three times. Over and over and over. In chapter 3, after she has the dreams of her man, and then again as a closing warning in the song in chapter 8, she says the same thing. She makes the same oath. I adjure you by the gazelles or the does of the field, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. There is no other predominant line in the song like it. So what is the point? Why over and over? Well now, remember, this is a song and it is filled with poetic imagery. In this case, the imagery of gazelles and does, animals that when speaking figuratively in the ancient world were usually associated with, well, with making love. Philip Riken in his book, The Love of Loves and the Song of Songs, he explains it this way. He goes, frankly, this young woman was thinking about sex. Believe it or not, she was also thinking about God, who we should always keep in mind when we are thinking about sex. We know that she was thinking about God because in Hebrew, the sounds of the Hebrew words for gazelles and does of the field deliberately recall the divine names of the Lord of hosts and God Almighty. So there's a double meaning in the text. It is a sanctified double entendre. The beloved has something so important to say to the ladies of town in the state that she finds herself that she calls God as her witness to what she's about to warn them of. Put in modern day language, what she's saying over and over and over again, ladies, she says, listen to me. 
I am not some middle-aged, prudy, poor man's Ryan Gosling-looking preacher telling you this. I am a young, hot, and bothered, burning with passion and in love with a good man that I am going to marry. He loves me. I love him. Woman. But ladies, take it from me. You do not want to get yourself all fired up. You do not want to let passion and desire get to this point within you until the relationship is at the right point between you. It is not only about the right person, she tells them. It is about the right time. About a thousand years before Paul told the Corinthians that sex was different and that sex was dangerous, this young woman was letting all of the women around town know the exact same thing. It's not just about the right person. It's about the right time. And thus this woman, in love as she is, she literally changes her tune, what she's singing, and she begins to sing a song of virginity. Do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases, until the time is right. And when is that? Well, according to every reference in the Scriptures, it is only right within the bounds of the marriage covenant. Guys, th think about this one. Is there anything right now more countercultural than that truth? Than telling people, do not, whatever you do, don't awaken your sexual desire. Because we live in a culture that believes every desire should be satisfied. People are constantly trying to awaken your sexual interest. It's everywhere. You can't check out at the grocery store without it staring you in the eyes. But every single sexual, sexual image we see, every enticing advertisement, every pornographic picture, it's a violation of, of her holy warning and difficult principle that these desires, we should not stir them up at the wrong time. And, and what she would say is the wrong time is any time outside of marriage, which I know, I know, in today's culture might seem probably does to a lot of you, ludicrous or laughable. In fact, some would probably even tell you it's harmful. Yet, despite our culture's current belief, this has been the unquestioned uniform view of all of the Christian churches, Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant, and of both the Jewish and Muslim faith for millennia. That may make you believe that the ethic itself is old-fashioned or in some sense stymieing, but here's the truth. The concept of sex being restricted to marriage was actually once groundbreaking. It was a remarkably modern and progressive way of thinking. And I believe, hear me in this, I believe it could be if we present it correctly again. Look, here's what we've established over the last few weeks. God is no prude. God invented sex, and, and God made it different for us, his prize creations. Sex for human beings, it was to have a different purpose, a different meaning, and pleasure than it does for animals. Because God gave us sex for different reasons, not merely for procreation. It's, it has a far deeper purpose. Paul, in trying to explain it to two different churches, he said that sex isn't just sex, it, it, that it did something to us on the inside. It, and you might remember, when he explained this, he would hearken back to our design, the way we were made when we were first created as man and woman and commanded by God 
the first commandment ever given to, to, to humans, to have sex, to be fruitful and multiply. And then God told them why he said this. He said that this is why a man leaves his father and his mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And so Paul, in his letters, when he's trying to explain this to the churches, he uses that language. He, he keeps saying, you don't understand, this is about becoming united, one flesh. In other words, marriage is this union between two people that is so profound, they virtually become a new single person. The word united there means to, to make a binding covenant. This covenant was meant to bring every aspect of the two persons' lives together now into one. They were essentially merging legally and spiritually into this single social economic union. In love, they were choosing to give themselves fully, wholly, utterly, leaving nothing back. And sex, this, this physical intimacy, it was to be the ultimate sign of giving oneself to the other, known, fully known, naked and unashamed, fully trusting the other, not just with my stuff or my time, but with me, with my body and my heart. Tim Keller, in his fabulous book, The Meaning of Marriage, he writes uh, that once you've given yourself in marriage, Sex is a way of maintaining and deepening that union as the years go by. In the Old Testament, there, there was often covenant renewal ceremonies where God would commission festivals or celebrations to commemorate this covenant that he had with his people. You see it in the Old Testament, for example, with, with Passover. You see it in the New Testament. Jesus does this. He does the same thing with the Lord's Supper when we celebrate communion. In the same way, the marriage covenant is renewed, it's, it's revowed and remembered through sexual intimacy. It is God's appointed way in marriage to reciprocally say to one another, to remind one another again, I still belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. I am fully yours, and you are fully mine. See, this is why God views sex outside of marriage as morally wrong because it is personally harmful. It hurts us and it hurts others because it was designed to be part of that marriage covenant. It was given to us as, well, it's kind of like a, a commitment apparatus. Sex plays not just a spiritual role in making two one, but actually a physical and emotional role. Remember Paul said it's different? used outside of marriage, it actually has the potential to hurt us somewhere on the inside. And now secular science is actually in complete agreement. Psychiatrist and neuroscientist Norman Doge, he explains that sex fires the dopamine system. Dopamine is the pleasure chemical in our brains. It plays a significant role in reinforcing natural behaviors like eating and drinking and sex. It's also the same neurotransmitter stimulated by addictive drugs. Anthropologist Helen Fisher has explained that sex releases the hormone oxytocin, which deepens our emotional attachment one to another. Oxytocin is the same hormone released when a mother breastfeeds a baby. It's designed to bond you. 
This is why she says there is no such thing as casual sex. It is not just a pleasurable act with dopamine. It is a bonding act, and it's designed to do just that. And so the reason that a loving father would create something as wonderful and powerful as sex, but, but then put limitations on something that he created his people to desire, well, it's because he's not just an all-loving father, but he's an all-knowing one. And what he understands is that sex outside of marriage hurts his children in several ways. First, because when you have sex, your brain gets flooded with dopamine and oxytocin, and, and, and you can say it's just physical. But over time, it does what it does. It bonds you, and when you have sex outside of marriage, you can wind up, and some of you painfully know this, you can wind up physically being bonded to the wrong person. This is why breakups in our modern culture are often so messy. This is why it's so hard for so many to get out of relationships that, they're, that they know are not right, they're not best, and that they shouldn't be in. But there's something there now. See, sex always makes something more than it is. That's the job of sex. I met my wife 18, uh, when I was 18 years old. I've been with this woman since 1985. My brain has been splashed with so much dopamine and oxytocin over that woman that at this point in my life, I am so bonded to her. I have no one to compare her to. There are not other memories that pop into my mind when I'm with her. All I have is her smell and her look, the way she smiles and walks. Now, I know my kids are getting grossed out right now, but when I think about sex, I think about my wife. You know why? Because sex with my wife did what it was supposed to do. See, that's the lie about our culture's obsession with sex. It's not making sex better. It's ruining sex. Here's the thing, and, and gosh, this stuff has been right there in the Bible for thousands of years. Since God designed us to use sex as a bonding agent, what we saw last week, if you remember, in regards to pornography and how its unparalleled current use is actually destroying our ability to be intimate with one another, with a real human being, the same thing is happening when we continue to believe that we can have sex outside of marriage with no repercussions. When you keep splashing your brain with these chemicals and bonding agents to someone and then pulling it apart and then bonding it and pulling it apart and then bonding it to another and pulling it apart, you know what it's like? It's kind of like a sticky in a Post-it pad. The first time you slap one of those yellow stickies to something, I mean, man, it'll stick for years. But you keep pulling it off and putting it on, and before you know it, you've broken down the bonding agent. It's hard to stick anymore to anything. Its power, in some sense, has been dissipated. You see, this gift of God's will lose its covenant-making power for you, even if one day you do get married, and, and that's the irony. Sex, out of, sex outside of marriage, it eventually makes you less able to commit and trust another person. And over time, it destroys our ability to actually experience real intimacy. And your good, all-knowing, all-loving Heavenly Father, He does not want this for you. See, 
we have to understand that, that sex is not primarily a means for individual happiness or fulfillment. Now, I know that's what the culture tells us, even down to the way we talk about sex. I'd do her, I'd hit that. See, in God's design, sex is the most powerful God-created way to help you give your entire self to another human being. You don't have sex. Sex is something you give. It is the ultimate form of whole life entrustment to another. And you need to understand, this is not an old-fashioned way of thinking. As I said earlier, it was once a revolutionary view. And I believe if God's people would understand it and embrace it again, I think it could serve to be like a light in the darkness of our, our current culture. I actually think that this idea is going to make sense to people again. I think it, it once again is going to be attractive and beautiful. See, into the hypersexualized culture that Paul existed in, here's what he said about sex that rocked the ancient world. You might know that, shockingly, when he, he wrote to the church in Ephesus regarding husbands and wives and how they were to live together, Paul told them, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now imagine that. In that male-dominated culture, he tells husband and wives, uh-uh, that has no place in a marriage. In a marriage, in here, this is the place of ultimate intimacy, knownness, trust. You therefore submit, submit always one to one another, back and forth. And how far does that go? Well, into this hypersexualized culture in Corinth, here's what Paul wrote then. He said, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, to which every husband in town said, I have a duty to my wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. He says that the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband, and in the same way, the same exact way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but he, he yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, speaking about sexual intimacy here, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time. You see, this concept of mutual submission does not stop at the bedroom door because sex is not about me. It is about thee. This is absolutely revolutionary in a world where men were permitted, where men were even encouraged to use their wives as property and then to have as much sex outside of the marriage as possible. Paul looks at the people that are following Christ and goes, it's not that way with you. In fact, men, you need to think differently. He says to them, you need to yield, submit to your wife, even sexually. Your body is for her pleasure, not just hers for yours. Sex in God's design is not about getting it's not about taking it is about giving yourself fully utterly and wholly in confidence and trust to another it is the ultimate vision of that it has spiritual emotional physical and yes chemical powers to bond unite and well as paul said to make to one and it should be used to celebrate and commemorate and seal the covenant of marriage and remember, this is also about that. In very much the same way, Jesus Christ, too, has given himself to us fully, wholly, completely. He's held nothing back in order that, that you might be known, that he might be in this exclusive relationship 
with you. You see, sex within marriage is this wonderful reflection of the love that God has for us. And that is why as his kids, we must, if we're, go if we're going to follow him, we've got to push back on the lies because it's destroying that image. And, I mean, let me make it practical. So <laughs> this is where, where, you know, where the rubber will hit the road. What do we do? Well, maybe our heroine sang it best. Do not stir or awaken love until it pleases. You see, the culture is doing everything it can to stir you up, to awaken you sexually. But you are not helpless. They ultimately are doing it to monetize your sexuality. They're never going to tell you that. They're never going to admit to you that they're hurting you. But you know better. And so first... I mean, figure out a way to limit their ability to stir you up. Stop the stir. Watch what you watch. Put limits on what you let in. Put blocks on your browsers. I mean, Jesus put it pretty bluntly, right? If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. Only you know what stirs you. Only you know what awakens you. Block them out. Cut the cord. Quit the job. Make the move. This is dangerous. Do whatever you have to do to not arouse or awaken love improperly. Remember how Paul put it to the Corinthians, one word, flee. Second, if you're not in a relationship right now, but you're out there on the market, can I, can I encourage it to make it known somewhat early in, in any new relationship? That at the deepest level, your heart actually already belongs to another. That you're serious about your faith and, and that it impacts your whole life, including what you're willing to do sexually. Guys, this, men and women, this is a conversation that actually has to be had sooner rather than later. It is easier to have in the front seat of the car than it is in the back seat of the car, if you know what I mean. It does not need to be weird or awkward. As you're getting to know somebody, part of your story is your faith. And so when your faith is, is, is discussed, that's the time to talk about the implications it has. It shouldn't come as a surprise. And of course, my counsel would be that, that if this new man or woman in your life can't honor and respect that, he or she is probably not the right man or right woman. Now, let me push a little further. If you are in a relationship today, you have the chance to redefine it, to put this gift of sex back into its proper place. See, you, you may actually have the right guy or the right girl, but if you're not married, you do not have the right time. For those of you that are not believers and you're hearing this message, look, I hope the science convinces you and you'll put a pause on sex in your relationship because you realize it's power and that ultimately it's better for you both to do that. But, can I just take a pause for a minute? If you're a Christ follower and you're in a relationship, not only should the science make you think, but Paul's admonition to the Corinthians should, I, should inspire us all to think differently. He, he wrote to them regarding this issue. He goes, you know, you're not your own. You're bought at a price, the price of Jesus himself. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Honor God with your bodies, with your sexuality. I, I can't tell you how many young couples come to me who are living together 
And I know I'm pushing into deep waters here. I know so many people, heck, just about everybody lives together now. I'm not blind. And and so many come and say, you know, we really just want God to bless our relationship. I, I just, can I just challenge you to think that through? I mean, you're asking God to bless something that is being conceived and formed in a way that he can't possibly bless. In a sense, you're already undermining it. He's already told you that the way you're starting this is a mistake. You see, if you want God's blessing on your relationship, then you have to follow God's design for your relationship. Now, I know that these are are tough words in this culture. When I counsel folks on on God's will for them here, I I always hear, if I'm honest, I hear one of two counter-arguments. The first is that, well, John, you know, sex is important to a marriage, which I think it's fairly obvious at this point that God agrees with you. Yes, it's very important. And since it's so important, John, how can you expect me to marry someone until we see if we're sexually compatible? To which, I I guess I would say two things. First off, you are actually designed with body parts in such a way that you will be compatible. That is likely not going to be a problem. Actually, the bigger problem with that objection is that, honestly, if I can just be honest with you, and I know a lot of people haven't thought these things through, but it it reflects a complete misunderstanding of the role that sex is going to have in your marriage. So you're going into it thinking that sex is something that you get, that it's about your individual needs and pleasures, and that you better make sure before you marry that this other person meets them. Guys, that, that is the complete wrong attitude towards marriage. Marriage is this ultimate place of self-sacrificing love. If you go into a marriage with that kind of attitude, I mean, if, if sex is just about you and you want to make sure that you get pleasure out of it, then wh- what, what in the marriage won't be about you? I mean, if someone, if somebody actually uses this logic on you, when you think about it, I mean, just let me ask you, will you ever be able to have an open and honest conversation about sex and and your desires? I think the answer is no, because you're going to be too embarrassed. You're not going to feel safe or known. Instead, you're going to feel like you're a, a performer on a stage or something, like you're being evaluated or compared. But you If you see sex as the ultimate in self-giving, then what can't you talk about in the bedroom? Right? It's all about you. There's no way with attitudes like that as you discuss these things that you can't figure it out when your highest goal is not your own pleasure but that of the other. And trust me, if you have an ability to be known like that and relate to one another at that level and have those discussions in your sex life, Your sex life will be the envy of everybody. Now, I know lots of folks that love God, and they meet the right guy or the right girl, and because they're so sure that this is the one, well, they move in. And often when they come to me for some premarital counseling, I I challenge them on that. And sometimes they'll say, well, John, we're not having sex. It's just for financial reasons. That's the second counter-argument I hear a lot. Which, sure, I get one apartment is cheaper than two, but, I mean, heck, I mean, my first question would be, do you have two bedrooms? Actually, I have 
counts a lot of folks who are doing this. They are living together, but they're not sleeping together because they want to honor God. But can I encourage you? If you're thinking about this, if you're a Christ follower, hear me on this now. See, how you live, especially when it comes to something as intimate and personal and powerful and dangerous as sex, see, the way you live is a much louder testimony to your friends about your faith than your words. The Scripture calls us to live above reproach, that we should live in such a way as not to cause another to stumble, and that we should, by our very lives, encourage one another in our walks. See, your private lives matter. But please don't underestimate the importance of your public witness. The value of your testimony to your friends outside the church and your brothers and sisters inside the church, I would argue that it's got to be worth more than the financial savings of, of one apartment versus two. Now, please, please do not hear this as judgment from John. Please just hear it as an encouragement from the scriptures for what is best for you and your relationship and your faith and for the others that we're called to live before God in this God-honoring way. And lastly, parents, please do not give in to the cultural lie that, well, what are you going to do? Kids are just going to have sex anyway. We might as well just make, it, make sure it's safe. The teaching, the truth is this. Outside of marriage, it's never safe. That too is a lie. And so explain this to your children. Explain the why. And it's not just because the Bible said so. Truth is on our side. And once you've done that parental duty, and you've explained that to them, then your role is to let them make their own decisions as mature, grown adults, and you love them like crazy no matter what they choose. And when you do that, you're going to be an awful lot like your Heavenly Father. Because the ultimate truth is this. You can set all the boundaries you want. You can cut the cord. You can block the browser. You can wear a turtleneck all the time. But all those things are ultimately either going to fail or frustrate you. Because laws are good, but love is better. And you have a better and far greater lover who has already given himself fully, completely, and totally to you, and who longs to know you intimately and personally. See, before you do any of these things, respond to him first. Let his love for you, his pleasure in you, his song over you, his grace on you, and his forgiveness for you, let that overwhelm your heart in the only way that he can. There is nothing like knowing and experiencing the knownness and love of God to help us trust and walk in his ways. See, here's the truth. None of us have gotten this perfectly right. This is hard. And I hope today you hear from me no judgment and experience no shame. I get it. Everybody's doing it. But you and I are not called to be like everybody. We're called, God's people always have. We're called to be unusual. Not in a weird way, but in a way that people look at and it points them towards God. Instead, hear the beauty today of God's design of you and his plan for you. And then today, knowing that God has the power to redeem, renew, and restore every bad decision in your past. 
And I'm telling you, he will if you ask him, he will. He can undo the damage the lies have done. Then today, choose to walk in a different direction. The past is the past. Those sins can be removed from you as far as the east is from the west. All you have to do is ask. And then decide today to live differently. Mendham Hills, honor God with your bodies. And going forward, heed the warning. Sing the song. Do not stir or awaken love until it so desires.